1: Support for today's episode comes from Stamps.com and Viceland TV. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And in today's episode, I'm going to break down the first recorded interview of Kenny Snow. But before I do that, I want to talk about a few things from last week's episode, the interview with Patricia Mims, or Plump. So first off, let me apologize to all of you for how hard it was to listen to that interview. I know that it wasn't an easy listen, and I debated a lot about whether to just commentate on it or let you hear the full interview. Since Patricia's interview is the shortest one that I have, I decided to go ahead and play the whole thing, and the reason for that is I wanted you all to hear a full interrogation from front to back so you can see how these things happen. I got a wide range of reactions on social media. A lot of people really liked hearing the whole interview, other people hated it, I even had someone tell me their ears were bleeding when they were listening to it, but as far as the content goes, most people heard it and thought that Plump was full of shit but a few people emailed me or tweeted at me and said that it sounded like she was really implicating Kenny and that she had good information. I'm hoping that last week was a good demonstration in how easy it is to manipulate someone, especially when you have some leverage over them. A big topic of conversation was the part of the interrogation where the mace can was discussed. And let me first point out that I misstated at the end of the episode when I said that Vanessa had told Patricia what color the mace can was. That wasn't the case and I really don't have any other excuse other than fatigue because it took a long time to get that episode recorded. It was late at night when I finished it. But I do want to discuss the mace situation. The revelation that Plumpa had that Kenny Snow had taken her can of mace was the most important piece of that interrogation for the police. It was really the only credible thing that she told them. Or at least the only thing that matched up with the victim statements. So what was your take? Was that part of Patricia's testimony incriminating for Kenny? If you don't remember it, go back and listen to that section of the interview with Patricia Mims. Like I mentioned last week, the first thing that you want to look for is where did the information come from? You hear Patricia at one point in the interview refer to this case as the Mace Bandit. It sounded to me as though that's the way it was being presented by the press. My take on Mim's interrogation is that she's scared and she's willing to do whatever it takes to keep herself out of prison. And when people get into that situation, they always seem to do the same thing. They start trying to give the detectives exactly what they were wanting to hear. And you can hear this throughout Patricia's interview where she says something or she second guesses herself. Or when she makes a statement, the volume goes up at the end of her sentence. It's a classic indication of a question or a guess. So, for example, when she was asked what color the mace can was, if you read a transcript, it says, I think it was black. But when you listen to the audio, what she says is, I think it was black? She's asking. She's guessing. She doesn't know what color the mace can is. So Plump knows going in that the robbery that occurred in Swan was done with a can of mace. So she knows that the detectives are looking for information about a can of mace. And when they first ask her about it, they catch her off guard and you get what is, in my opinion, her true reaction. They ask her if she has a can of mace and she says no. She almost sounds surprised when she says no, like she hadn't thought about that part. And then, and again, this is my analysis, when she realizes she's not giving them the right answer, she checks herself and she starts to create a narrative. Yes, yes, now that I think about it, yeah, I did have a can of mace on my keychain. And uh, now that I think about it, that can of mace was missing, or that set of keys was missing. And what day was it missing? Oh, that's right, it was missing on the day that the store got robbed. So after first answering the question, no, that she doesn't have mace, I think that she realizes that that's not the answer they were looking for. until so she quickly crafts this narrative of how, yes, she does have a can, and it is on her keys, and they were missing that day. But then they ask her what color it was. Now think about this. Think about your keychain and what's on it. Especially something as big as a can of mace. It's something you see every single day. There's just no way that you don't know what color it is. She guesses it black, and Vaness actually does a good job here, and he doesn't let her know that she has the right answer. He says, well, there's different colors. There's black, there's blue, there's red, whatever the colors were that he said. And then Plump says that, to be honest, she can't remember what color it was. Now, this is significant. Again, we can argue about inflections and voices and things like that, but break it down to the hard facts. She knew that Kenny was supposed to have a can of mace when he committed this robbery. And she commits to the fact that she did have a can of mace and it was missing that day. She's comfortable with that. But what she doesn't know is what color it's supposed to be. And since she doesn't know, and Van doesn't let her know, she doesn't commit to a color. She leaves that open. Again, she guesses it black, but then she says, to be honest, she can't remember what color it was. Now, in Kenny's confession, he says that it was a black can of mace, which would seem to corroborate with Plump's story. But something to consider is, we don't know what color the can of mace actually was. Off the top of my head, I don't believe it ever says what color it is in the police files. And to be honest, at this point, I really don't trust anything that's written in those reports anyway, but it's not anything that could ever be tested because the Tyler Police Department destroyed it in 2002. Remember, that's when Kenny Snow wanted to have the DNA tested that was on the can of mace and they said they had destroyed it. So what did we really get out of Patricia Mims? Or what did the police really get out of her? They honestly didn't get anything from her. She gave them details about how she thinks the robbery might have went down, but those details are contradicted by the victim's statement, and she tells them that Kenny had a can of mace, but that information came from the detectives, and it cannot be considered reliable. And personally, I don't believe she ever even had a can of mace. I think that if she did, she would know what color it was. For the rest of today's episode, I'm going to be dissecting the first interview of Kenny Snow. I had taken a poll on all of the social media sites asking if people would like to hear the full interview or just have me give a breakdown of it with some clips. About 75% of you wanted just to hear me break it down and didn't want to hear the full interview, which I can understand because they can be very painful to listen to and the sound quality is never good on them. So this is what I'm going to do. On Wednesday, I'm going to drop a bonus episode. And the bonus episode will be nothing more than the full, unedited interview of Kenny Snow. So after you've all listened to this, if you want to sit through and listen to the entire interview, it will be available on Wednesday, so check your podcast feed. But for now, let's break down this interview. I want to preface this by mentioning to all of you that the biggest problem that we have in this case is the fact that neither Kenny Snow nor Patricia Mims had a lawyer present when they were being questioned by the police. This is a terrible, terrible idea. There are a lot of things that police officers are doing here to manipulate and possibly even coerce that never would have happened if a lawyer was in the room. Here's a clip from the very beginning of Kenny's interview when they're asking him if he wants a lawyer.
2: You have the right to have a lawyer present to advise you prior to or during any questioning. If you're unable to employ a lawyer, you have the right to have a lawyer appointed to advise you prior to or during any questioning. You have the right to terminate the interview at any time. You understand that? Well, if I had to have a lawyer, I fool could I do that? Uh sir, we'd have to check with the courts on that. We had no for up on the interview. For the interview? Yeah. Uh, we there again we'd have to check with the courts to see when they could get you one point. Can that that you said yes, you want an attorney? Uh I guess we need what we need to ask you is do you want an attorney? Right. I really don't know what's going on in my way. Well sir, it's like this, this our uh, last one right here. If you agree to talk with us without our attorney being present at this time, then at some point after we start talking and we explain what's going on to you, at that point you want to terminate the interview, stop it, and consult with an attorney first, that's fine. And we're not going to get, we're not going to get mad at you, Kenny. We're not going to get mad at us. We're just trying to find out the facts in this case. I, 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 I see what's going on. I guess again, again, the question that we need an to ask you is, do you want an attorney or not? Before, before we talk about it. It's a simple yes or no. And it's your choice. You're no, not. You. We're not. Yeah. I'm saying like, if I ask that I'm an attorney right now, I not want to take me to get an attorney, or I have to just do the interview over. So oh, we'll have to do it over. Yeah, there's some down our like that. Like I think most of the judges aren't
1: even in today. Kenny wants out of there. It's hard to hear because of the audio quality, but what's happening is Kenny's asking the detectives how long it will take for him to get a lawyer. And the detectives jump on this. This is Friday morning, and Waller's telling him that most of the judges aren't even in today. They're basically letting Kenny know that if he wants an attorney, then he's going to have to spend the whole weekend in jail. He finally agrees to talk to them without an attorney present with the promise that after the interview, they'll take him upstairs and let him make a phone call to obtain an attorney. But that never happens either. Think back to the interview we had with Corey Session, where he discussed exactly this. He talked about how the detectives in the state of Texas, a lot of the time, will get buddy-buddy with somebody and try to convince them that they don't need an attorney for the questioning, and it leads to a lot of wrongful convictions. About a week after this interview, Kenny Snow was brought in to interview again. This is the beginning of that interview where they're talking to him about a lawyer again.
0: We can't tell you or talk to you unless you really talk to the law attorney. About what? Go out and do anything there. Yes, go out and do anything. When I get finished I'm talking, can I get down to that couple of attorneys? Um, call them in the book. Sure. Yeah. One more call. Okay. Do you have an attorney? Well, I think you can. you, know. you have a time? I can. Oh, you can. Because mm-hmm. so if you have an attorney, we have to notify your attorney that we're, that's the reason I'm asking. We have to notify your attorney we're talking to. I don't have one right now. My son, they wanted me. I had called up. That day You had told me to let me make the phone call. They took me upstairs. They let me use the phone call the man. So, you know, it's hard for me to get a term. They don't know if I call a collect on the phone now. I mean, sure. And they haven't let me talk to them. <clears> okay. <throat> but if I keep asking them I, mean, I can get a term if they won't let me call. Okay. So. Do you want to call? one? Yes. Well, you know, when we finished they let me just look at my number of calls. Then come over you know, there, you know, I can the money to maintain them. Well, do you want to talk to one now? You know, or do you want to talk to them? Talk to us first? That's your suit. Again, at any point in time, you do decide to talk to him, any point in time, Ken, that you want to take and change your mind and say, no, we're talking to talk to my attorney, you say, hey, man, just talk to the attorney. Well, this is for y'all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Kenny is complaining that after the last interview, that he was not allowed to go upstairs and use the phone to obtain an attorney. And again, as you heard, they very nicely convinced him to talk to them without an attorney, with the promise of letting him call one afterwards. But getting back to this interview, once it begins, Kenny just seems very confused. And a lot of this interview, I'm going to tell you up front, is kind of painful to listen to because he's all over the place. He doesn't know what's going on. He's not very good with directions. And it just takes a long time to get a little bit of information out of him. Kenny had been arrested while training in Dallas. And it takes several minutes during this interview for them to even figure out when he was in Tyler last. And it's one of the reasons I'm not even convinced that the altercation that Kenny says that he had with a man at a tire shop or his running around with Plump even happened on this day. His recollection of events is obviously not reliable. And as you heard in the MIMS interview, she was convinced that it happened on Monday. The detectives convinced her that it was on Tuesday. And she still bounced around back and forth several times. But regardless, in Kenny's case, it was determined that he was in Tyler on the day the robberies occurred. Then right after that, Vanessa starts asking Kenny if he's on drugs. He says that he's known him since he was a kid, and he knows that he never gets in trouble unless he's on the drugs. And he brings up the fact that back when he had forged the checks and stolen the generator, that during those occasions he was on drugs. Kenny denies being on any kind of drugs and says that because of his parole, he has to give urine tests on a regular basis. Now, I have to tell you all up front that by watching this interrogation, I was pretty certain that Kenny was actually on drugs. He looked like someone that was going through withdrawals. He was very fidgety. He was yawning a lot. There was a lot of things that are indications of deception that were making me a little uncomfortable at the beginning of the interview. But not too long into the interview, Kenny finally admits that he is using. Now, I'll point out, to this day, Kenny tells me that he was not on drugs, and he told me the same things that he originally told the detectives, that he couldn't have been on drugs because he was doing regular urine tests with his parole officer. But in this interview, he does eventually come clean and say that, yes, he's using. And I have to say that I believe him when he said that. I don't think that was any kind of coercion or manipulation. Now, at this point, Vanessa starts to explain to him all the details of the robberies. I honestly don't think that Kenny Snow has any idea where this robbery occurred. If you listen to the full interview you'll hear any time they're talking about addresses or directions, he's completely lost. and this is the only description of where the robbery occurred he ever gets. In, uh,
2: years after mm-hmm. Across in the tire store tire shop there by. Uh,
1: Kenny says that he did have a flat tire that day. And the detectives ask him if he ever actually bought a tire. He very confidently says yes. They ask him where, and he gives a specific description about where he bought the tire from. Again, he's not good with directions, so he's, he's using his hands and trying to show them on a map exactly where it was. But he tells them that he bought a tire at this place, and it cost $18. At this point, Van Ness hasn't been very hard on Kenny at all. But then he breaks down and explains his case to Kenny. He shows him a picture of a composite sketch that was drawn up based on information they got from Juan Martinez, the second victim. And that sketch is up on the truthandjusticepod.com website under the case documents section now. Kenny looks at it and says that it doesn't look like him. He's kind of laughing about it. And to be honest with you, and you can judge for yourself, because also on the website I have Kenny's mugshot photo posted, I don't think it looks like him either. But Van Ness says that he disagrees. He said he does think it looks like him. And he pulls out the mugshot book from 1992. And he puts the two together and tries to explain to Kenny how they look alike. Now, I have not seen the old 1992 mugshot. I have copies of it, but they're all blacked out. You can't see what the picture looks like. But Kenny has a few very distinguishable characteristics. For starters, he has a great big scar over his left eye. And we've already talked about his gold tooth. Neither victim said anything about a scar over the eye or the gold tooth. Now, in the composite drawing, the mouth is closed. We wouldn't know about the tooth. And he's also wearing a hat in the photo. Vaness then bounces back to the drug use. And this is the part where he gets Kenny to admit that he is using again. This is also the first time he takes a stab at using Kenny's girlfriend, Sean, as leverage. I'm going to play this clip and listen to Kenny's reaction at the end when they mention Sean.
2: But when they turned the page to your picture, they said, that's the man that robbed me right there. And I told Detective Waller, I said, I know that man. I've known him since he was nearly a kid. And he's never robbed anybody before. He's never stole from anybody till he got on drugs. And that's why I ask you that, kid. Because that's the only time you've ever been in any trouble in your life. And you know it. It's right. when you got off on drugs. You've always been straight with me and Mr. Russell. We've always tried to do what we told you we'd do. Okay? And you look me in the eye and tell me, have you been using drugs? Yes, sir. You look down and tell you, you told me the truth. Mm-hmm. Kenny, if you messed up, son, you're still salvageable. I uh, don't You had it all going for you before, and you got on drugs. You got back out here, and you had a good start. Somebody come along
0: and wave that sack in your face again, didn't they? my yeah, I'm coming I'm, I'm to the thing. I didn't out no money.
2: I hope you didn't. Peter. I hope you didn't. But you know, and I know from our past experiences, a person that's on drugs can't make it on two hundred dollars a week. You were getting your money somehow. You know how? Are you gonna get Sean involved in this? To We we have reason to believe. That in one of the robberies, there was someone else in the vehicle. Yeah. This is my in Jesus Christ. I never, I ain't never, I ain't, I'm telling you, the truth. I ain't robbed my and I definitely wouldn't drag shine into nothing like this, man. Right? Nothing. I, come to I pray you, to God, you tell us the truth. I wouldn't come, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, even, I wouldn't even bother with nothing like that. Never. Never. I would never get involved with nothing like that.
1: If you listen to the entire interview... You'll hear Vanessa come back to Sean over and over again. This is a classic example of the Reed technique. The way Reed works is you're trying to get the person you're interviewing to justify their confession. You're giving them a reason to come clean. And I will admit, Vanessa is a skilled interrogator. I don't think he's a very moral interrogator, but he's definitely skilled at what he does. And you can hear throughout the interview, he's like a bloodhound sniffing out Kenny's weakness. And as you'll hear when you listen to it, His weakness is obviously Sean. Now you remember back when Jim Trainum interviewed on the show, and he talked about the Reed technique. This is why he said it is such a dangerous tool. Remember when he talked about how people will tell him that they would never confess to a crime they didn't commit? And he chuckled and said, I guarantee you there is a gun that I could hold to your head that could get you to confess to anything. And he was talking about a proverbial gun, meaning with the right leverage, he could get anyone to give a false confession. And in Kenny's case, there was only one thing that could possibly get him to crack, and that one thing was Sean Puckett. About thirty minutes into the interrogation, Vaness tells Kenny about the Crime Stoppers tip.
2: Let me tell you what what we got. Okay, we were looking at several different people. We were, We didn't. I to tell you the truth, I didn't even know that you were back in this area. Last week, we got a call Crime Stoppers. that told us that you did this. Told us you were staying in Motel City. Told us what days you were there, when you checked out, and when you left. I Told, you, told us where you were staying in Dallas, the room number you were staying in, the car you were driving, where you were boxing out of, and who you was boxing for. That was the first time that I even knew... That you had been back in the And Somebody told somebody told you something like that. one person that knew where I was staying at. They try to cover their own ass. That'd be my own brother. Huh? Well, I can brother. tell you it wasn't your little brother. Huh? I can tell you that it wasn't your little brother. Somebody else. Somebody else know why I was staying at. That's it was Joe Costello. The only two people know why I was staying down. It Joe Costello. And of course he had called me and said, because he'd he that I wouldn't sign a contract with him, to my old brother. And them only two people knew who I was in Dallas. Knew I trained at in God The only two people They can tell you all that. So, so then, then we take them, see, we don't have a, a picture of you, but 1992. That's the last time you were processed through you at that time. So that's when we take remote shot book out there. And we already let these people look at them. I had already let my witness look at the remote
1: shot book before. If Vanessa's telling the truth here, then the only person who could have called in that Crime Stoppers tip would be Joe Costello. And that's incredibly disturbing because Joe Costello would not have known anything about this crime even if Kenny did commit it. There would be no reason for him to call in a Crime Stoppers tip unless he had a reason for wanting Kenny to be locked up. And another interesting point is that just a few minutes later, Van Ness reveals that he actually knows what's going on in Kenny's boxing career.
2: I said, Kenny's messed up. He's on drugs. I said, that's the only time he ever gets in trouble. I said, because he had it together. I said, in fact, he's supposed to be fighting. I thought it was on ESPN. had a contract to fight on ESPN.
1: And I find it odd that he knows what's going on with Kenny's boxing career, but as you'll hear from this clip, he can't even remember Kenny's last name.
2: The interview is completed at ten fifty eight a m. on January the thirty first, nineteen ninety seven. It is voluntary, given by Kenneth Leon. Right, my mind looked like snow. Kenneth Leon
0: Snow, uh,
1: And the fact that he can't remember his last name at the end of the interview is interesting too. Because he's kind of playing the, I've known you since you were a kid card throughout most of the interview. At this point, Kenny spends quite a bit of time with the detectives trying to break down his timeline of where he was at. And what they landed on was that he had come to Tyler. He was staying in the Motel 6 with his brother, Tony. He stayed there with him for a few days and they had a fight and Kenny left. He then rented a room at the Dixie Motel. And he says that the whole reason he came to Tyler was because his girlfriend Sean's daughter had broke her leg and needed to go to the doctor. He says after they went to the doctor, later that week, they went back to Dallas because he was supposed to leave on a flight to go to a fight on Sunday. Now, at this point, we're almost 40 minutes into the interview, and Kenny just seems annoyed by all of this at this point. He was really nervous at first, and I believe that's because he was trying to hide his drug use because that would be a parole violation, But after he reveals that he is using drugs, the nervousness goes away, and now he just seems annoyed and even a little bit angry. At about that 40-minute mark, they ask Kenny if anyone else had driven his car. That's when he says yes, Plump drove his car. He doesn't know her name. He only knows her by Plump. He's describing her to the detectives, saying that she always wears a wig and she's got glasses, and he says that they should know her because she got picked up last week. But Kenny says that Plump came to his room at the Dixie Motel because she was out of gas and she needed to borrow his car. He said that he found out later that her car was actually sitting at the Shell gas station. Now, if Kenny's telling the truth in all of this, it really doesn't look good for Plump. For starters, he says that it was around noon when she picked up his car and also that she had come to his room because she didn't have gas when her car was at a gas station, but then later he drives her back to the gas station where she puts gas in her car with no explanation of where she got any money between those two times. But Kenny says when she left with his car and she was gone somewhere between thirty five and forty five minutes. And when she returned with his car she also had his girlfriend Sean with her. And he said that Sean was pissed. Like I said, Kenny used to mess around with Plump back in the day and she apparently wasn't happy that Plump was driving his car. Now at this point Van S stops and questions him again, asking if this was Wednesday or Tuesday when this happened. And again Kenny's confused, he's not sure And again, he's really annoyed at this point. He tells him just go check the hotel records that the hotel records don't lie. So when we compare Plump's version of events and Kenny's version of events, we have a few contradictions. For starters, where the pickup happened. Kenny says that he was asleep in his motel room when Plump comes by, knocks on his door, and asks to borrow his car. Plump said that she was hanging out at the Shell gas station, and Kenny pulled up and asked her to go with him. Now, one or the other of those could be true, or it could be somewhere in the middle. But to me, Kenny's story makes more sense. Because even in Plump's version of events, Kenny is the one driving. She says that he picks her up, he's driving, they go up, he walks into Bill's used tire, walks back out, and they drive away. She doesn't say that he needed her for anything. Bill Cole doesn't say that there was an accomplice or a getaway driver or anything like that. So if Kenny's sole intention was to go up there and rob that store... Why would he need to go pick Plump up? He could have done it on his own. But both of them say that after they got back, she says that she then left again with his car, and she brought Sean back with her. They both say that Sean was pissed, and they both say that she left. At about the 50-minute mark, Kenny starts to get nervous. He asks "Asked what the difference is between a simple and an aggravated robbery. Then he asked him what happened in the aggravated robbery case.
2: Whatever force is used bodily injury, serious bodily injury. I actually this man had all his teeth knocked out, had his eyes completely shut, and had to, had, to, had his face split open and had to be stitched up. Now, the simple robbery, the robbery that, that the sheriff's office warrants based on, that he just uh, went in there and sprayed a guy with some kind of spray, a pepper spray or mace or something, and reached into the man's pocket and took the money. That's why it's just a simple robbery. This robbery not aggravated.
1: Any force is used in uh, either a weapon or a bodily injury, then it becomes aggravated. This is the first time that Mace is mentioned. And again, in that checklist we talked about last week, when you're dealing with a confession or any interview like this, you want to check off where did certain pieces of information come from. In this case, like many others. The detectives are giving Kenny all of the information he needs to create a narrative if he decides to do that. You'll also notice here that Vanessa is minimizing their simple robbery charge, like it's no big deal. And I think that might play into why later Kenny ended up confessing to the simple robbery charge. I'm going to take a quick break here for the ads and we'll get back into the show. Now at this point in the interview, Waller is out of the room. He's trying to figure out who Plump is. They're looking through their mugshot books and their arrest records from the previous week because they're trying to figure out what her full name is. While he's out of the room, Kenny is pleading with Vanessa to check all of these sources. He had listed off several names of people that were around the hotel. He asked them to check the hotel receipts. He says that all of this information will verify his story. Vanessa assures him that he will, but he never does. At least not according to the investigation documents that they gave me in my open records request. Vaness starts to get a little tougher on Kenny at this point, and he's starting to make it clear that Kenny's not getting out of there and that he is going to get convicted at all costs. In the clip you're about to hear, Kenny catches that Vaness had said that a blue car was used in the second robbery. Earlier in the interview, he had already told Vaness that Plump drove a little blue car.
2: You Let me tell you something. I'll tell you something else, too. I've always been up straight with you. Right. you know? I'm not going to lie to you you're trying to trick me. Right. The robbery the one out on uh, 271 at far, a red car like yours was used. The one on Gentry Parkway, a blue car was used. Hey, Can you see now why we, we were looking
0: at you? Yeah. I there on am This is the truth. I'm coming to you real.
2: hmm Now, I never knew. Yeah, I'll tell you. I never really knew another car was involved until you told me. So just now, you told me about it. Well, that's according to the witnesses. Right. You know, but you gotta remember this man that told me that he thinks the car was blue the people was in, he's got one eye completely shut, beat shut. He's got blood running down, he's got uh remember what I told you. And he staggers out, you know, and it's on two seventy one and the people have sped out of the parking lot going up Gentry Parkway, and you know, cars are coming by. Sir, so sir, remember I just what I just told you, what I just told you. I told you I said the girl had a
1: blue card. If I had to put my finger on it, I would say that this is the point where Kenny reaches that point of no return. I think that he's figured out at this point that he's screwed. And he starts flailing. And he starts doing what everyone does in this situation they start pointing fingers at someone else. Now, sometimes that's just because they're trying to pin it on anyone but themselves. And a lot of the time, it's because they think they might actually know what happened. Put yourself in that situation for a moment. Say you were arrested for a crime that you didn't commit. And through the course of the interrogation, you're racking your brain trying to figure out how you're going to get out of this. And the detectives have given you information that in your mind might help solve the case. So let's say for a moment that Kenny is telling the truth and that Patricia did take his car around noon for about 45 minutes. So he knows that it was about that time that the robbery occurred at Bill Coles used tire and the person driving supposedly was driving a little red car. And then they tell you that the second robbery occurred later that night and the person driving was driving a little blue car. A logical assumption would be that maybe Patricia is the one that was responsible for the two robberies. But in any case, Kenny is flailing at this point and he's trying to make a case against Patricia. Like you heard in that clip, it's pretty obvious to see that in Vanessa's eyes, Kenny's the guy. He's told him in the interview that they know it was him who committed the robbery because Juan Martinez identified him in the mugshot book but then when he says that it was a blue car, he starts saying, well, he was had his face beaten in and one eye swelled shut, and we can't really rely on him to tell us what color the car was. And something that's not mentioned here that I found in the police files is Juan Martinez actually left the shop in his truck and chased the car. So he obviously could see well enough to drive and identify the car long enough to follow it, but I think Vanessa doesn't like the fact that that car's blue, or at least he doesn't want Kenny Snow to know that he thinks maybe Kenny wasn't involved in that robbery. The whole thing is just getting frustrating to listen to at this point. Fifty-five minutes into the interrogation, Kenny still doesn't even know where the robbery occurred.
2: And we're talking about mean? a victim that was stunned, so we're not, we're not, you know, we're, we're not getting everything. That's why we're calling investigators. We look into everything, okay? But this one thing, and that's why we want to check, run this down, and check it out to make sure. I sir, sir. If if, they, if somebody robbed that man over there it at, 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 um whatever the other I were you talking about that it wasn't me I'm telling you straight up that wasn't me that wasn't me sir.
1: After this, Kenny goes on to explain again how Plump took his car, and he also mentions the same mutual friend that Plump mentioned in her interview, Ray Jones. Kenny says that when Plump knocked on his door, Ray Jones was pulling up in his car.
2: Right. Okay. When she left in your car, when you let her leave it, did Ray Jones leave at the same time? No. He stayed there. And when Ray he... Jones sat out there and talked. He was going to come So yeah, I can contact Ray Jones and, and, you know, talk to him.
1: Ray was never contacted by the police. As the interview goes on, here Van Ness tries to make another sad attempt to relate to Kenny as buddies. And again, listen to Kenny's reaction when Sean is mentioned.
2: I, I asked Sean to come around with me, Sean tonight nah, for Sean was mad. So I'd get in the car, i take her down into her car. Women well, we have to do that, though. Yeah, but, you
1: know, she had a right to. No matter how hard he tries, Vanessa cannot get Kenny to say one bad word about Sean. Now, something I want you to do is, if you listen to the bonus episode and listen to the interview in its entirety, put yourself in the position of a detective who's looking for leverage. And you tell me, after listening to that, does Kenny reveal anything or anyone that can be used as leverage against him throughout that interview? I think you'll probably come to the same conclusion that I did. About an hour into the interview, they take a short break.
2: We're going to take a break in this interview, so uh, this Kenny can go to the restroom and we'll get some more coffee. Yeah, I'm going to have a sandwich here, man. Well, we'll get you something. Yeah, you want a hamburger or something? Yeah,
1: Apparently, Kenny never did get that sandwich.
2: There yeah. oh, oh, you can't, hey, Leon Snowden. You think you're going to give me a hamburger, man? Yeah, I'm going to get you a hamburger. All right. All right. I'm, hey, I'll tell okay, you what I'm going to do. I'll buy you a combo. fries, Coke, the word. Let the kids. Nothing. All right. I'm going to lie Kenny, have I ever lied to okay.
1: you? After the break, Kenny starts asking for ways that he can help himself. Well, see, I don't know why you're saying like, Like, I snitched, I snitched her out and
2: all that kind of stuff. We're just asking you for contact. We're going to do the follow up and we're going to do the investigation. Who is Gray? Big time dope dealer in you town. You know. well, we're not, we're not, this is not about a dope, this is about a robber. I mean, he, he had nothing to do with that. Uh, he, What's his last name? I can't think of a bad name, but he you didn't know. What was he drive? A pink van with gold in him. Where's he staying? uh, old, uh North Talmud, not oh, St. Louis Yeah, he you Okay. Well see we went great, 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 great is just you know, he's big time he a dope lot, dope he ain't no he ain't no robbery, ain't nothing, anything like that. Okay. He's a dude that I got contact with you know, I used to contact people in Dallas for him and all that. That's all I you know, that's what it, that's what he, he that's what man him do. They, you know, feeling around But you know, I don't. You know, I don't know what. How can I? If, if I can prove, if 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 I, how can I try to help myself in this situation? You you give us some stuff here to follow up on. to a check
0: in. I don't come out. Just say like. Just say like um.
1: He's noticeably upset at this point. He's wrestling with giving the cops information about a drug dealer that he knows named Greg. He says that he doesn't want to be known as a snitch. And this comes out of nowhere. Before they went on the break, he was just walking through the narrative of what happened with Plump. And all of a sudden they come back from the break and he's talking about a drug dealer and saying he doesn't want to be a snitch and he's pleading and asking what he can do to help himself. I would love to know what was said during that unrecorded break. Vaness questions him a little bit about the dope dealer, Greg. And like I said, Kenny's real hesitant. He doesn't want to give him up. He gives him a little bit of information, but not enough to do anything with. Vaness then tells him that if he wants to help himself, he needs to give him some information on the robberies. And so Kenny starts doing just that. At this point, I'll point out, in my opinion, Kenny's absolutely lying here. He's flailing, he's stammering, I think he's trying to do anything he can do to get himself out of that room and out of that jail. Now, it's easy to get kind of disgusted with Kenny here, because he's so quick to snitch out somebody else. One of my listeners tweeted at me, whatever happened to snitches get stitches? And the reality is that that's become a Hollywood concept. People taking the fall for someone else is something that happens in the movies. I'm sure it does happen on occasion, but the reality is, most of the time, most people especially the underprivileged who've had several other run-ins with the law, if it comes down to you or me, it's going to be you. And you also have to consider the fact that I think that at this point, Kenny actually believes that Mims was involved in these robberies. Based on everything that the detectives told him, it certainly looks like she's probably involved. But now he's telling Van Ness that Plump came back to his hotel that night. Well, at one point it's that night, at one point it's the next morning. But he said that she had like $200 on her, And she wanted to buy some drugs, and she knew Kenny had the hookup. And he said that he knows that she didn't have any money earlier in the day. They keep questioning him, and now he says that Plump had a can of mace in her car. Now remember, about 20 minutes back, they told him that the person who robbed both of those stores used a can of mace. So if you just take this one line, it looks like Kenny's got her. But again, that information didn't come from him. It came from the police. And besides that, he still got it wrong because he says it was the next day when he saw her and she had a can of mace in her car. But what Kenny doesn't know at this point was that the can of mace was actually left at the second crime scene. It was sitting in the evidence locker at that point. So he's either a really good actor, or he doesn't know enough about this crime at this point to even craft an accurate narrative. At this point, Vanessa and Waller kind of abruptly bring the interview to a close. They end by saying that they need to follow up and find Sean and Tony and Plump, and they have several other leads they need to follow up on. But according to the police files, the only lead they ever did follow up on was Plump. They brought her in, they got her to give an interview implicating Snow, and they never went any farther with their investigation. They never followed up on any leads, they never contacted any alibi witnesses, and they never tested any of the evidence that was collected. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, they collected a ball cap from the second crime scene that was supposedly used in both crimes, They collected the can of mace with blood and possibly fingerprints on it. That was supposedly used at both crime scenes. And they collected blood off the floor. They never tested any of that. But they close the interview, and they're subtly letting Kenny know that he's not getting out of there anytime soon. In the bookends of both the beginning and the end of this interrogation, Kenny's making clear that he just wants to get out of there. They use the threat of him being there all weekend to convince him to talk to them without a lawyer. At this point, I think they're setting him up to continue talking to them off camera by letting him know that he's going to be stuck there for a while. This interview will now be ended. Thank you. When, will it up? when will we talking? As soon as we run this down, yeah, run this and, stuff po- down. and cooperate with what you told us. Hopefully today, it might be Monday. We got work to do. Yeah. We got a lot of, lot of stuff to follow up okay. I'm a cigarette. This was the cigarette break where Kenny says... The Vanessa and Waller threatened to arrest Sean for these crimes if he didn't confess. He says the nice guy routine was over. They told him that if he didn't confess, they were going to arrest her. And they told him what he needed to say in the confession. Of course, the police files say that they were outside smoking a cigarette and he just decided to come clean at that point. But in any case, after this, they took him back inside to record his confession. Except for they didn't take him back into the interrogation room, the small room with a camera in the corner where you can see everything that's happening. Instead, they took him back to an office with just a camcorder set up on a tripod, and Detective Wallers is off-screen for almost the entire interview behind the camera. But that's a topic for another episode. The most frustrating part of all of this for me is when I go back and listen to this interview And think about how it would have happened if Kenny Snow had a lawyer present. And it's absolutely disturbing and disgusting that these cops would manipulate him into not getting a lawyer. It was obvious when they brought him in for the interview that he wanted an attorney. You do have the right to waive your constitutional right for an attorney. But that is intended for someone who does not want an attorney. A police officer with any kind of ethics and morals would never push someone into conducting an interrogation when they've said that they want a lawyer. They manipulated Kenny Snow. Now that doesn't mean that he's innocent or he's guilty, but this is about truth and justice. It's about a fair trial and about an honest investigation. It's about facts and evidence. And the fact is that without Kenny Snow's confession, there is no case. The only evidence that was ever collected in this case was destroyed illegally. And by the way, in Kenny's second interview, when they let him know that that evidence exists, he immediately asked them to test it. But they never did. The only witness against him was Patricia Mims. And the only thing she had to say, if you believe her testimony, is that she was with him in a car when he went to a tire shop, where he parked right in front of the front door, calmly walked in, and calmly walked out, and they drove away. After speaking with Bill Cole... Even the victim testimony is not reliable. If it was, it wouldn't have to be manipulated in the police reports. And speaking of the victims, earlier this week, I was finally able to make contact with Julio Martinez. That's Juan Martinez's son. He translated everything for Juan with the police back in 1997. And Julio's memory of the investigation is also quite different from what's listed in the reports. Next week on Truth and Justice. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all of the music for the show. Remember, if you like the music, you can download the soundtrack on iTunes. The soundtrack is called Truth and Justice, The Music. And you can listen to a free sample of the album at truthandjusticemusic.com. Thank you to Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to Daniel Schaefer for editing the podcast. Thank you to today's sponsors, ViceLand TV and Stamps.com for funding today's program. Don't forget that on Wednesday this week, I'll be dropping a bonus episode with the full unedited interview with Kenny Snow. Please keep in touch. Let me know what you think about it. And keep sending in those thoughts, theories, and ideas about the case to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. In one of these next few episodes, I want to get back into reading some listener emails, and I've even been considering doing another listener call-in show. So let me know on social media if you'd be interested in participating in that. You can do that on Twitter, at TruthJusticePod, or you can like the Facebook page and contact me there. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.